sake of new definitions and creating culture and stuff, a lot of us have heard of it as fivefold, right? I know I grew up hearing it as fivefold. Well, we're going to redefine it as ministers of the gospel, mostly just because there's a lot of baggage that comes with um, phrases, right? You, you might learn about something a certain way. So we're going to create a new language for our community, and hopefully this helps us to discard anything maybe that we were taught or believed that wasn't actually biblical or, you know, whatever. We all come from different backgrounds. So minister of the gospel, this is where it's from, Ephesians 4, 7 through 16. I'm going to read it in the um, New American Standard. It says, but to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Huge. Now, I, I want to encourage you. I could read that five times here today to try to get it into our mind. I encourage you to keep reading over this passage, Ephesians 4, 7 through 16, just to get it in your mind, get it in your heart. So these fivefold, the reason why it's called fivefold, what we heard of, is because of those five gifts. So we're going to call those five gifts now ministers of the gospel, apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher. These gifts were given for the equipping of the saints, bringing the church to maturity and the unity of the faith. That's what the scripture says. I basically just took those things. So that is the main call of these ministers of the gospel. Apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teachers. Gifts given for the equipping of the saints to train, to equip, and then bring the church to maturity and unity of the faith. So there's some misconceptions. I'm going to just hit these right in the beginning, and we'll kind of address them as we go. Some misconceptions about ministers of the gospel. One is that these roles in the church are no longer applicable, that they don't exist. So it's an interesting perspective because of what the scripture says, you know, that, that we're until the unity of the faith. I mean, even just that part. Yeah. Are we in unity in our faith in the church, in the global church? No. <laughs> are we all mature into the fullness of the stature of Christ? No. Okay. But some people actually believe these roles no longer are applicable. They believe that some groups of people believe it ended with the original 12 apostles, which are the 11 disciples, minus or Judas Iscariot was no longer part. And then they cast lots for Matthias, who became the 12th apostle. So they believe it ended with those original 12 apostles. We'll, we'll talk about that later. Some believe that only three of the five roles exist. So that's funny. They can pick what they want. But they, they believe that only apostle and prophet are no longer exist. They're, they're just not part anymore. But you can be an evangelist, pastor, and teacher. 
kind of makes sense because apostle, prophet, those are the scary ones. <laughs> We're a little better with evangelist, pastor sounds okay, teacher, like I can handle it. Yeah, and Joseph said authority, that's a great point. Apostle and prophet do carry more of the sound of like, ooh, I don't know about that. Um, and then on the other side of the spectrum, some people believe that every believer has one of these gifts. That's a misconception. That would mean that every single person in this room falls into one of these five categories. Not true. Not true. It's something you can desire and be trained to do. Like, ooh, I want to be an apostle. How do I become that? Nope, can't do that. It's a gift. It's a gift from God. It's a grace that he, was, he gave. Um, and you are appointed to this position. No appointment to these ministers of the gospel. We're going to talk about recognition, but they're not appointed to a position. There's a difference there. Elders, deacons, bishops are all appointed, and we're going to ex explore the reasons why, why these things break down. So these are some of the misconceptions, and if, if you're looking at this and you're like, oh, gosh, I believe that. Oh, gosh, I heard that before. Um, just don't be too, too offended. If you have a question, just ask me. Um, so what is biblically true? There were certain individuals in the New Testament church and the early church. And when I say early church, I'm talking the first few centuries, three to five centuries. That's what I'm talking about when I say early church. In the New Testament church and the early church who were recognized to be functioning in these gifts. They were gifted and called by God first, as Ephesians 4 describes. It was in their makeup and design. So they were born and had a gift from God. God had given them a gift. It was in their very nature. Um, we see them functioning all throughout the book of Acts and the epistles, which are the letters that Paul wrote. We've been exploring those letters a lot, right, in our Sound Doctrine groups. So they were gifted and called by God first. First and foremost, he gave a gift, he gave a calling, uh, and it was actually in their nap. They couldn't stop being. Like, an apostle couldn't be like, I don't want to be an apostle. Evangelists couldn't be like, I don't want to be an evangelist. I'm dropping that. No, it was in their natural design. So they were going to automatically just function in that way. <laughs> and it could be healthy or unhealthy. Um, recognized by other ministers of the gospel. Paul exemplified this with his teens. And were acknowledged before the corporate church with the laying on of hands. So the example is Timothy, right? Paul, I'm rushing through some of these because I got a lot of slides and we are going to go deep. And if you want the slides, I can send them to you too. Um, but these were not, so they weren't appointed to a position. They were recognized by other ministers of the gospel. So a minister of the gospel would say, wow, that's like Paul with Timothy. He chose Timothy recognized him, called him out, made him part of his mission team, and then had him uh, acknowledged before the corporate church with the laying on of hands. And every leader in the early church was acknowledged before the early church with the laying on of hands. Do you guys remember when we did our uh, leadership appointment in January? What did we do? We called them up and we laid hands on them. And that was an, an appointment for some and an acknowledgement for others before this church body that these are our leaders. And they are positioned to have a role in this church family 
and a role of authority because of demonstrated either gift or demonstrated character and call, okay? And then we're gonna explore this a lot, sodal versus modal leader types. And maybe you've never heard those words before, um, which is so cool, I think probably nobody has, or maybe a couple of our leaders, because we talk about this a lot, but hopefully by the end of this study, you're gonna be, you know, so clear on what a sodal leader and a modal leader is, okay? So those are some things that are biblically true about ministers of the gospel. So now I abbreviate the MOGs, the minister of the gospel, okay? That's what that means. The role of these MOGs, no, I'll say ministers of the gospel. Yeah. It's so relevant. Yeah, it's so relevant. So <laughs> you know, I got a PowerPoint, now I'm gonna talk slang. Yeah, exactly. The role of these ministers of the gospel played in the early church consisted primarily of, so these are the general role that they played, being sent out to preach the gospel and plant churches. In Acts 1, we see that. The disciples, the original 11 plus then Matthias, were sent out by Jesus. They were commissioned and then the church exploded, right? And then Acts 13 and 14, those are just a couple of references. There are more. But in Acts 13, it's, some of you remember we studied this, Paul and Barnabas. They were in Antioch, and they were set apart by the Holy Spirit and sent out. And they went to preach the gospel and plant churches. Uh, they cast vision to equip saints and build up the body to maturity. That's the Ephesians 4 passage. They instructed and established the community of believers in the household order to guard against false doctrine. So that's what we're doing Sunday, um, Wednesdays, Sound Doctrine Groups, 1 Timothy 3 and 4. Paul instructed Timothy to, to uh, establish the church. So ministers of the gospel, they are concerned about establishing an entire group of people which might you know, include some individuals, but they're looking at the, the big picture. And then to set in order what remains, that's from Tim, uh, Titus chapter one, verse five, and that's Paul speaking to Titus, and he says to Titus, set in order what remains. So there was a church that Paul had planted, and he says, Titus, set in order what remains. This means Titus had to go in and assess what was happening in the church community. He assessed it, and then he would determine what was needed to establish that community, what was remaining to be established, okay? And, and then, so there's a level of assessment that they did. It included the appointment and further development of leaders. We see this in Acts 14, uh, Paul instructing both Timothy and Titus in First and Second Timothy and Titus. So he's telling them you know, that the appointment and development of leaders is in their wheelhouse. That's what they're focused on, that's part of their role. Um, and then to oversee allocation of funds. So we have the tithe that comes into the church or giving. Well, the ministers of the gospel were primarily, there were others that also oversaw allocation of funds, but my ministers of the gospel were overseers of where the, the money was going and why it was going to different places. Um, and that's in Acts 4 and 1 Timothy 5. I'm not reading all these scriptures because that would take forever. So again, 
you can get these slides from me and you can look them up and I encourage you to do so, especially if you have any question or anything that comes up that says, wait, I, I wonder about that. We always encourage to say, don't just take my word for it. Get the scripture, dig deep yourself. So Arthur Patsia writes in his book, The Emergence of the Church, Context, Growth, Leadership, and Worship. The functions of leaders, he's talking about in the early church, the function of leaders varied among the first century churches. In other words, people with the same title performed different ministries or roles in different localities. Rather than promoting distinct and self-contained roles, the early church made room for a variety of functions. The picture of leadership is more like a series of interlocking and overlapping circles than a row of separate entities. Now that's a little heady, sounds a little deep, but what it's really talking about, think about what I just said with Titus, set in order what remains. Well, with each church community, there's probably different things that need to be done, right? So an apostle, say, in one context, might be doing one thing, like appointing leaders or training leaders, and an apostle in another place, because of the need, have a totally different function, like establishing the community in sound doctrine, right? They're both apostles. They're both walking in their function, in their wheelhouse, of the general roles, but there's a level of assessment, they come see what's happening, and then they begin to move according to what need is there. Does that make sense? So it's not like, oh, you're an apostle, come into a place and then do check, 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 check. Doesn't work that way. God's a living God. He's not like, oh, you know, just check these boxes and you'll be okay. No, we live in relationship with him, with Holy Spirit, led by the Spirit. We assessed by the spirit we look the spirit and truth we're, we're walking with god to establish the church so that's what that's saying though there's much interlocking and overlapping in the function of leaders in the church ephesians 4 does give us insight that these ministers of the gospel have a gift and grace that looks toward the big picture of the church or the vision of the church their function and activity are meant to focus on the church at large in equipping the saints for the work of service, and this is in a primary sense to their gift and call. So maybe some of you, and we're gonna explore this more, I'm just kind of laying groundwork for ministers of the gospel. So that's all five of those gifts. Their natural bent, their natural inclination is to look at the big picture. They're seeing not only their own local church and the big picture of that local church, they're thinking, the church in the region, they're thinking the church in the state, they're thinking the church in the country, and they're thinking the global church. They're constantly with this big picture stepped far back away and saying, we need to do this and do this. And, you know, that, that's kind of their natural bent because of that gift is for the big C church. And when I say big C church, I'm talking global. The church is global, right? We're just one family. It's part of a big, big family that's global. Right, so that's, that's what leads us into sodal versus modal. That's the big picture versus local, global versus local. And these terms, uh, Ralph Winter coined the terms sodality and modality in his book, Perspectives on, Perspectives on the World Christian Movement. The book is an anthology of articles edited by Ralph Winter, 
he included a small chapter, which is chapter 19, of the two structures, this is the important part, two structures of God's redemptive mission. In it, he described how the church exists in two forms. And you see it all throughout scripture, and you see it all throughout church history. In its local form, modality, and in its mission form, sodality. Local, modality, mission form, sodality. Winter gives the following secular example to give a picture of these functions. He says a secular parallel would be that of a town, a town being modality, like the town of Carmel, say. Or let's, let's use the town of Bangor. I know it's a city, but we'll, we'll just say the town of Bangor. Compared to a private business, which would be the sodality. So, or perhaps a chain of stores found in many towns, like Chick-fil-A, right? Let's say IHOP or Chick-fil-A. Let's use Chick-fil-A, Christian, right? <laughs> yeah, basically a church. <laughs> um, so the, the town, Bangor is the modal place. Chick-fil-A is a sodality because they're a chain of places. The sodalities, the Chick-fil-A's, are subject to the authority of the uh, more general structures, usually. They are regulated, but not administered by uh, modalities. Think about that. The Chick-fil-A and how they hire people and how they do their job, their culture in Chick-fil-A is not administered by, the, by Bangor, right? Bangor has no say in how Chick-fil-A does all their internal work. They're a chain, they're, they're apart from, but they're regulated maybe by some town laws in each town. But they are of themselves, their own entity, right? Does that make sense? It's helping you? Try to think of that example when we're talking about this. So Winter then likens that to Paul being sent off, but not sent out from Antioch. He writes that Paul may have reported back to Antioch, but did not take orders from Antioch. His mission team would be a sodality. They had autonomy and authority. Okay, so when Paul, if you see that in Acts 13, it says the Holy Spirit set part Barnabas and Paul apart for the work of service, and all the leaders there acknowledged it, and they sent them off. Prayed for them, with fasting, sent them off. Now was Antioch telling Paul, now go to this city, and then you'll go to this city, and then you'll preach here? No, they didn't give any instruction. Paul and Barnabas went led by the Spirit in the authority of what they walked in, their gift being set apart by the Holy Spirit, and then they decided by the leading of the Holy Spirit where to go and what to do. And at the end of chapter 14, after appointing leaders, they returned back to Antioch to report. So they're not disconnected. They're not rogue people just saying, well, we get to do whatever we want. That, that didn't even make sense to the early church. We have so much of that in our culture because of American culture that's very independent. I get to do whatever I want to do and you should have no say in it. That's not how they functioned. Paul and Barnabas were very connected to Antioch. They spent a lot of time there teaching and building relationship. You know, the early church, in a lot of times, met daily together. That's amazing. Every single day. We probably get sick and tired of each other, right? No, we love each other more and more. <laughs> but they spent daily time together, studying the word, having fellowship. 
learning together. So Paul and Barnabas were deeply connected to community, but when they left, they were not being controlled by Antioch. They were controlled by the Spirit. <laughs> they were being led by the Spirit. They, plant, they preached the gospel. They planted churches. They appointed leaders. And then they went back to Antioch and said, look what happened. This is all that happened. So we see this difference in forms all throughout the Bible, as well as throughout church history. We see totalities and modalities. So now, we, let, let's look at it in scripture with the leaders that we're talking about. So total leadership would be ministers of the gospel. Apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher. Those that have been given a specific gift and grace for the uh, building up and instructing and establishing of the global church. Now that might be in a local community for a time, but they're typically doing that for many churches within a network. And that's why they're sodal, right? They're sodal leaders because they're moving around, performing that same type of function, maybe showing up and assessing what's going on, praying, seeking the Holy Spirit, what needs to happen here. And then they, they, they position people, whatever needs to happen. They do that, they set leaders in place, and then they might leave to another place if the Lord leads, which typically he does. So they're constantly looking towards the bigger picture, the mission of God through the Big C Church, which is the global church, and establishing little C churches. So I said that about one time, but whenever you see a little C, I'm talking about a local church. When you see a big C, I'm talking about the global church. Okay? So I don't want to say big and little C every single time. So, and establishing little C churches unto that purpose. So, like I said before, this local church, we're a family, right? We're a family made up of many different families, a family of families. We have the Greener family, we have the Ghanaians, we have the Yates. You know, we're a family, the Crossing Life Church of many little families. That's the same in the global church. The global church is a family made up of families, local churches, okay, family, families, and they're constantly, these sodal leaders, ministers of the gospel, they're equipping, they're focused on equipping, positioning, instructing, they're connected to a local body of believers, and they're accountable to leaders, so again, they're not rogue, they're not like, I don't care what you say to me, I'm going to do my own thing, they're connected and accountable, and um, I'm going to turn here real quick just to read this, but this is Peter and Paul, some of the craziest, most amazing guys, right, apostles, and they were subject to one another. Now listen to what Paul says in Galatians 2, 9 through 13. He says, um, so, and recognizing, he's in the middle of a statement, you can read the whole chapter later, but he's saying, and recognizing the grace that had been given to me, so again, he's talking about his role, the grace from Ephesians 4, he's an apostle. The grace had been given to me, James and Cephas, who's Peter, and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas, who was another apostle, the right hand of fellowship, so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I also was eager to do. So Paul is saying, we were recognized by these pillars in the faith. Uh, being James, Cephas, who's Peter, James, Peter, and John. That's Jesus' inner circle. 
Peter, James, and John, right? That inner circle gave the right hand of fellowship to Paul and Barnabas so that they could go out. So Paul obviously thinks that's a little important, right? He was recognized by other stable leaders. Not rogue leaders, stable leaders. And then it says, now look at the flip of accountability. But when Cephas, I'm going to say Peter, but when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. So basically, Peter was preaching one thing, living one thing, and then because of other leaders that came, in the fear of man, he rejected the Gentiles. And Paul calls him out in a letter that became part of the Bible. <laughs> Yikes. It's like forever inscribed. Can you imagine someone calling you out and then it becoming a book that everyone reads for like forever? <laughs> it's like, that stinks. <laughs> So, but just to show the accountability there, Paul said, I was accepted by these Peter, James, and John, and, and uh, acknowledged as a, a leader, as an apostle, but I also have Peter's accountable. Paul, um, to an entire church, condemns him. Big stuff there. So then modal leaders, elders, bishops, deacons, leading men and women, those were the other types that we had talked about. They focused on the local community of believers, their development in their faith and sound doctrine, grounding individuals and families, walking out the mission in the community. They're not prone to go church to church to church to feel like I need to establish, I wanna get in and work on this and like acknowledge calling and set people in their places. They're not, that's not their leaning. But they're prone to stay and bring people and community to De uh, deeper levels, and they're typically locals, not always, but typically people who are from the locality. They're like, I am here, and I want to dig deep with these people, and I want to make sure these individuals are grounded in their faith. I'm concerned that they're really understanding sound doctrine, that they would be unwavering. I'm concerned that their families would be unwavering. They carry a lot of the weight for the local church establishment. It's a huge role. But th that's where their focus is, on individuals, on families, on grounding and so sound doctrine. Uh, and then also the mission of the local community, reaching the lost in the community, going to your neighbors. How are we reaching out? They are concerned with that. They're not just local focused, right? They're not just inward focused. They are looking to the community, wanting to see souls saved, harvest come in, right? So that's a modal leader, elders, bishops, deacons, leading men and women. They're, I'm going to keep digging with this, so hopefully it gets in your mind, too. Typically, once a community or work is established, they move on to do it again, like Paul and his teams. Paul never stayed forever in one place, right? We see him moving around to establish churches, to plant churches, to establish leaders, and, and he would stay until he felt the Spirit telling him to leave, right? And, and, or until he saw that it was established or leaders were there. They're connected deeply with people, but they're driven with vision to establish a church. There are a few examples in scripture of resident ministers of the gospel, like in Acts 13. There were prophets and teachers in those first three verses. 
So prophets and teachers were resident in, Act, in Antioch. They stayed there. Not, I mean, they did travel some, but they were more planted in one place. So there are some, um, but had a distinct role within the community. And we'll explore that later. Modal typically desires to stay planted and to see individuals and families truly grounded and healthy. Just a side note, this does not mean that if you are constantly wanting to move place to place, that you're a minister of the gospel. You're like, oh yeah, I love to just hop from church to church. It doesn't mean that. In the Orphan Mentality book, there's a whole chapter that says, yes, like, darn it, I wish. Oh yes, I get to biblically move from place to place. No, you might be functioning in an orphan mentality that hates being known. And so for that reason, you run from place to place because you're afraid of going deep with people. It may just be that orphan mindset or if you've always wanted to be a missionary, that doesn't signify, oh yeah, that you're a minister of the gospel. Gifting is a primary indicator, not desire, gifting. Bent. As both Sotal and modal leaders have overlap, modal leaders will have vision in their heart for the greater mission of the church, and Sotal leaders will have vision in their heart for the local community. Um, these two structures or distinctions and leadership types certainly have overlap, and rightly so, this is what I was just saying. No locally minded leader is meant to stay inward focused entirely. Like, oh, we're just gonna stay here. No. They need to be focused on what are we doing in the mission? Where are we going? How are we planting? That will be in a local leader. It's just that they don't feel like they're the ones that are supposed to go themselves to plant the churches and establish the churches. They're saying, no, we as a community need to do that. Who, who are our ministers of the gospel that we can send out? Who's being led of the spirit to do that, okay? Um, and then no, uh, and no globally-minded leader is meant to be an island unto themselves with no connection to local community. So this is the following as a basic overview of the relation of ministers of the gospel to local leaders. This is part of that. Um, and these are just things that I've already said. So it's kind of just grouping it all together in one format, how they relate to one another. But these are, you know ways to see, again, we're still in ministers of the gospel. I haven't broke down all five yet, but this is just to give you an idea of what they are, what their purpose is in the body, and why they're there, and how to recognize if they're healthy or unhealthy, right? Because if they're not connected to other leaders, if they're not deeply connected to local church family, it's unhealthy, not a model. That's not a biblical model. Paul and the other apostles were deeply connected to local churches. Peter was in Jerusalem. Paul and Barnabas were in Antioch. They were deeply connected, spent years of time in those localities before they were sent out. Okay? So just to help recognize, what time is there? Yeah, it's up to you guys, because I have apostles. How are you feeling? Are you feeling okay? Yeah? We go like 15 more minutes? Yeah? Okay, cool. So we're going to jump into apostles, and over the next several weeks, we're going to talk about each of the fivefold, 
I'll group some together, so we might do two at a, on a Sunday. But today we're just going to talk about apostles because they're pretty um, misunderstood. The role is pretty misunderstood. So the the word apostle in the Greek is apostolos. Okay, so when you're when you're in the original language of the Bible, it's apostolos. This word actually means messenger, one sent with a message or one commissioned. So one commissioned by God with a message to go out, right? That's what it literally means. And then these are individuals serving as with these functions, missionary or preacher, witness of the gospel. So a lot of the missionaries we have today are not apostles, okay? I just want to make that clear. Some of them are. Many, maybe many of them are not. I know missionaries, dear friends with YWAM, so I'm not saying anything about it, but they are local leaders 100%. They are elder types. They're shepherds. So, so they, move, they move to Thailand, and they want to shepherd a church. They want to be in a church and shepherd the people. <laughs> they just wanted to do it in a different country. Right? So they're not really ministers of the gospel. Their, their whole unction is to shepherd people. Okay, does that make sense? So not every missionary is necessarily a minister of the gospel. But a true missionary, like if we're redefining missionary as one cent, right, would be a minister of the gospel that goes with the purpose to preach the gospel, plant, establish churches, appoint leaders. That's a true missionary. And I know that's going to be hard for us to switch our minds Right, because we've seen so many examples of so many different things with what missionary is. And I have an entire paper on this. If you'd like to read that, if that challenges you, just ask me. I'll print it out and give it to you. Um, they fo apostles focus on teaching, instructing, and establishing. That's what they're there for. Solving congregational and personal problems. We're going to see some scripture about this in a minute. Discipline and admonishing. Uh, administrative tax, tasks, like the, the distribution of funds, like we talked about. Healing and praying for congregations. They move in the signs and wonders as well. Laying on a hand, seeing people healed, and praying for the congregation as a whole and individuals. Um, so those are just some of the functions that they walked in in the church. And that was just natural, coming from the gift and the grace given to them by God. It flows from them. They Everything inside of them is like, I've got to do this. I've got to do this in the big picture. So here are some apostles just named in Acts and the epistles, which are Paul's letters. Here are some of the apostles that are named. And this is why we don't believe that the, it ended with the first 12 apostles, because there were many after them that are named in scripture, and then many after them in the early church. Okay, so... Some of them in Acts. In Acts 1.13, we have the 11 original disciples. That's minus Judas Iscariot. And then in verse one, uh, chapter 1, verse 26, Matthias replaces Judas Iscariot by them casting lots. So the Lord specifically, uh, they used to cast lots to know God's will on a certain. That's, that's kind of funny, right? <laughs> it's like, let's just roll some dice <laughs> and see what the Lord says. <laughs> <laughs> it's like crazy. Yeah, we're going to start casting lots. <laughs> yeah. I forgot that one. Yeah, yeah, right, right. In Revelation 21, 14, it says there are 12 apostles. 
All right, so that's the 11 plus Matthias that are seated on thrones. Pretty amazing, right? And then 242, we hear about the, the early church. They're dedicated to the apostles' teaching. So we can assume that's definitely the original 12, maybe some others. We don't know if it started multiplying yet. But then in chapter 4 and in chapter 14, we see Barnabas. They extend the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas, who becomes an apostle. And then chapter 14, Paul. Now we know Paul's story about how he got knocked off his horse and all that stuff. So Paul becomes an apostle. And then in Galatians 1.19, James, the Lord's brother, is named an apostle. 1 Corinthians 4, 6 through 9, Apollos and Paul are named apostles. 1 Thessalonians 1, 1 and 2, verse 6, Timothy and Silvanus, which were part of Paul's missionary teams, they were called apostles. Philippians 2, 25, Epaphroditus, uh, it says messenger in that verse, but it's the same Greek word, apostolos, okay, so it's apostle. And then 2 Corinthians 8, 23, there are two unnamed apostles, the the tr English translation says messenger. Not sure why they changed it, but the word, the Greek word is apostolos. Same word, apostle. And then Romans 16, 7, Adronicus and Junia. Junia is the only female apostle named in scripture. And there's a lot of debate. They, well, there is debate around that. Some believe that her name was, that a man had a female type Greek name. I don't believe that. Obviously, I don't believe it. <laughs> um, these are all who are named Apostle and Acts in the epistles. There are others who are part of Paul's missions teams that were not directly called Apostle. So they worked closely with him. They were leaders in different ways in different churches. But many scholars consider those on Paul's missions team to be ministers of the gospel as well because he was training and equipping them to perpetuate the role, right? So those are, there's a lot of people on his missions teams, tons. And I have a list of those if you'd like to, they're not in this. So the role and function of a modern day apostle and what we can term here is apostolic overseer. I like that better because a lot, for some reason apostle makes us uncomfortable. It makes other people uncomfortable. You start saying apostle to other Christians they might start calling you a heretic when we're literally just taking from scripture, right? So apostolic overseer might sound a little better or different. <laughs> uh, yeah, palatable to others. And then they might ask you, well, what do you mean by that? And you need to have this in you <laughs> to be able to explain what you mean by that, right? So no apostle today, no modern day apostle has the same role as the original 12 apostles and Paul because they were commissioned, the original 12 commissioned by Jesus to lay the foundation for the initial building and establishing of the church. They received and gave the initial revelation, right? We talked about this for Paul, for the church household. There's no apostle today who's receiving fresh revelation about how the household should be run. If you come across an apostle who says they're getting revelation about how the church should be run, that's not Paul's model, they're not true, they're false. Okay? That sounds harsh, but we've got to learn to discern 
be what between what's true and false, what's biblical, and what's just things we make up for whatever reason or things we've been taught. Okay, so we're not coming up with fresh revelation about how the church should be run or how the church is meant to be built. That's already been given by the original apostles, and no but no other apostles doing that. What what modern day apostles are doing or apostolic overseers is what Paul passed down to Timothy. And that's what's meant to be perpetuated through the ages. When he says in 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, uh, Timothy, I'm entrusting this to you, entrust this to other faithful men who will continue to entrust it to other faithful men so that the teaching would be passed down. So that the role would be passed down, so that the understanding would be passed down. And what that role was, was to preach the gospel, gather believers, teach and instruct, and appoint leaders in its simplest form. That's what the, the function of the modern day apostolic overseer is, right? That assessment we talk about, depending on where the church is at, what needs to be happening. But that's going to be their, their, their uh, basic function. They are establishers, church planters, and visionaries. So some examples, Sean Foster, he is 100% an apostolic overseer. Uh, anyone who knows, and I've talked to him for an hour, maybe half an hour, maybe 15 minutes, <laughs> you know he is talking big picture. He is constantly has vision for the church. What are we doing next? Where are we going? How are we doing this? Instructing, teaching, establishing, appointing. His whole, the fiber of his being does that naturally. And he runs hard to do it, right? So he's Sean, Steph as well. I wouldn't say she's apostolic, but Sean's apostolic overseer. Hudson, my younger brother Hudson, he's in Canada. Maybe not all of you, I don't think most of you have met him. He's a bad example then. But that's, it's the fiber of his being as well. He goes into a place he assesses, and then he starts to pray, and then he starts shifting, positioning, establishing. That's just how he does it, right? It's in his whole nature. It's how he does it. And then myself, that is always how I've been. I, I, it's in the fiber of my being. I, I would die. I would literally just, I don't know what I would do if I couldn't be doing this. I've got to be doing it. And I've got to be establishing churches. I've got to be, you know, making sure people are in their positions. That's why we talk about that so much. That's why our Sunday gatherings are all these big picture vision things. Because we're trying to get everybody on that same page in unity for that. So I'm the apostolic overseer for crossing Carmel. All right? I'm not, like I said last week, I'm not a pastor. I'm not the worship leader, though I am. I'm a worship leader. I'm the my primary function here is apostolic overseer. Okay? And, and I know that's kind of weird. So how do you announce, like, oh, and our apostolic overseer. That's weird. You don't have to say that. Yeah. You don't have to say it, but, but just so we understand. We're trying to create language for our community so that we understand we're creating a culture here. That's my role. Okay? How, how are we doing on time? How is everybody doing? Because there's... Go for it. You sure? Okay. Yeah. What do you got? What do you got? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm like, 
Do you know Paul the Apostle preached so long that someone fell out a window and died? Because he fell asleep and then he had to raise him from the dead? It's like, how much? How, how long are you? Yeah, too short. <laughs> yeah, yeah, who's Kristen? He just fall out the side. <laughs> yeah, that's true. All right, so uh, Apostol Roland Allen writes concerning apostolic ministry in his book, The Spontaneous Expansion of the Church. He says, to leave newborn churches to learn by experience is apostolic. To abandon them is not apostolic. To watch over them is apostolic. To be always nursing them is not apostolic. To guide their education is apostolic. To provide it for them is not apostolic. The missionary and bishop must watch over their education. So basically what he's saying, there's a fine line here. To be apostolic is saying, you know, we as community need to learn by experience. We're going to allow for a lot of experience in here for people to make mistakes and grow as we learn together, right? And I'm not going to be saying, no, you can't do that, and you can't do that, and you can't do that because I need to make sure. No. Uh, watching over everything is apostolic. So if something doesn't happen, or it happens that shouldn't, or is not biblical, I'm watching over it. We have a team of people watching over it, but as an apostolic overseer, I'm watching over it. Okay, well that might need to be addressed, so we'll, we'll address it on the mic if it has to be addressed, right? So that's different than controlling something. To, be, to abandon them is not apostolic. To watch over them is apostolic. To be always nursing them is not apostolic. To guide their education is. So to always be nursing them, that'd be like trying to shelter you from truth and always feeding you like baby food, right? It's like, no, that's that's not my job here is like to make things like easy for you to chew and nope, I'm gonna give it to you straight. <laughs> um, but to guide your education, to provide a path for you to learn, to help you grow, to make sure people are growing. Right? I'm not going to spoon feed you. That's what our sound doctrine groups are for, where we're not just telling you what's true. We're asking you what you believe. Right? Do you see the difference? We're not saying, okay, here's the truth. Now put it in and ingest it and believe it. No. What do you believe about this? Do you believe that's true? Why not? What does the scripture say? We're guiding growth. We're guiding your education. We're guiding your maturing in sound doctrine. Does that make sense? Difference. Um, I think we're going to pause because we do have a meeting. And this part is really important. Actually, this is the last part. I'm going to go 10 minutes and we're going to finish it just because there is a lot. We're going for weeks, okay? Discerning true apostles. Since apostles are not appointed or administered by other leaders, we must learn how to discern what makes someone who is gifted a true and trusted apostle. There are three ways we see biblically that apostles were recognized as true and trusted. All right, these are very important. You can just memorize these, the gospel, the relationship, and the work. All right, those are three ways to determine if uh, an apostle is a true apostle. One, the gospel. The gospel message itself carries its own authority. Paul's message carried authority because it was the message of Christ. 
He was not attempting to coerce people to follow him and his beliefs, but rather he's found persuading people to follow the message that God had given him, the message of the cross, right? So that message gave him, the message itself was authority. That's what gave him uh, that authority. Paul's task was not to create a community of believers that blindly followed whatever he said. He did not want that which would be a worldly idea of authority. He was tasked to establish a community in the authority of the gospel, adhering to it in life and, if need be, in death. If he could establish them in the truth, the community could then discern false versions of it, even if it came from an angel or himself. Paul's letter to the church in Galatia probably most clearly demonstrates this attitude that he held. In Galatians chapter 1, if you remember, he clearly speaks to the authority of the gospel, and that being from which he derived his authority, along with the fact that it was not something he received from man, but from revelation from directly from Jesus Christ. Okay, that was wordy. Basically saying that Paul was saying to the church of Galatians, even if an angel from God appears to you and teaches you a different gospel, Reject it. Okay, that's huge. An angel. Supernatural. Imagine if you saw an angel in the room, and then they begin to just twist the gospel a little bit. Reject it. And then Paul says, even if I come, so he sees his own frailty. Even if I come, he's not saying I'm, I'm you know, the highest authority, whatever I say goes, just believe me no matter what. He said, even if I come, and teach you a different message, reject it. That's the authority of the gospel. So when you're looking at apostolic overseers today, if one carries a message that is not the message of the cross, it's not the gospel message, reject it. They're not a true apostle. You reject the message. Or maybe they've gone astray. Could be false or could be gone astray. Okay? So pay attention. You need to know the gospel message yourself so you can discern when something's not the right message, okay? That's what uh, made Paul have that authority. There was authority in the relationship. It made him a true an apostle. Paul constantly refers to his relationships, to his teams and communities, with family terms. He's alluding to more of a personal rather than formal authority, like a parent with a child, right? That's family, but there's authority there. There's relationship, there's love, there's deep connection. It's not a formal authority, it's a familial authority. Um, he called himself a father, he called himself a mother. That's funny. He called himself a father, a mother, and a nurse to them. He also addresses them as his little children, that he's working tirelessly to form Christ in them. So his communities were subject to him much through relationship. As literal, literal adults, they could choose to heed or disregard his message, which had authority. The message had authority, right? Because it was God's message. And ultimately, they would be held accountable to God for their actions. And we see this in 1 Corinthians 5. Paul addresses sexual immorality in the church, and he instructs them to hand this, listen to his language, strong hand this one over to Satan for the destruction of their flesh, put them outside the church, and treat them like an outsider. 
These are very strong and authoritative instructions, but it was an authority that was derived from the content of his instruction, the message carrying authority. And then he would go where he had a relationship. He planted that church. He had deep connection with those people. And in, first, in the church of Corinthians, the local leaders were not addressing the, the areas of sin. That's why he stepped in, because it was not being addressed by the local leaders. And so he did what he had to do to discipline, to bring the correction. He did not assume a place of authority over people, but was gifted, called, and gained authority by the message he preached and lived. And as a result, people submitted themselves willingly and voluntarily as they recognized the authority on his life and through his message. So if you're ever in a place where there's coercion or manipulation or pressure, I've been in some meetings where I felt so pressured by the person talking to do something. That's false. That is not how the leaders in the early church functioned at all. They don't pressure. They don't put a heavy weight on you to do something. There's a massive difference between conviction, like we saw what Rob said. He felt like his heart pounding and, and had to do something about it. That's different than feeling manipulated by a leader to do something. That might be to get money from you. That might be for you to do more in the church. Whatever it might be, reject it. Okay? In relationship, because there's this, this uh, authentication through relationship where it says, you know, you know, I have a relationship with Kate. She has a relationship with me. So in this, she says, okay, I recognize the gift on Wesley, and I, I'm going to link arms with her because I recognize that. We have a relationship. She's walking in something. I'm going to support that. Makes a difference, right? She's willingly doing that. I'm not forcing her. I'm not twisting her arm. Like, trying to manipulate her to do that, okay? If you feel that's happening, it's false. Reject it. And then lastly, the work. Paul did not often boast of the work that he completed, but when he did, he was usually doing so to address heart attitudes. He also spoke of his work as a means to defend his apostleship and his calling, specifically at the Church of Corinth. Again, he wrote saying that they are his workmanship, and the fact that he established them should be proof to them that he was an apostle, okay? The work being proved. Also just testifying to who he is. So he says to them, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen the Lord Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If I'm not an apostle to others, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. His work was the seal of his apostleship, right? It's almost like Sean with Wyndham Crossing, a seal of his apostleship. It testifies of his gift. It testifies of what he's functioning. It's not, you know, someone who's, who's not planting and establishing something, you'd say, well, I don't know if you're actually an apostle then. Like, what's actually being established? You're allowed to question, right? You're allowed to question those things. So the work testifies to the gift. If you have a gift, there will be natural fruit that flows from your life. It's going to naturally come. You know, it's not going to be something that you desire and strive to do. It's going to naturally flow. And then lastly, the work of a minister is more of an affirmation or seal. 
and the community is to recognize and order itself under such people because of the work and the labor they have performed. And that's what it's talking about in 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 through 13. It says, but, but we ask you, brothers and sister sisters, to recognize those who diligently labor among you and are in leadership over you in the Lord and give you instruction that you regard them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. So we're recognizing the fruit of the life, the work that's coming from, and then we order ourselves under those people. Like I saw what Sean was doing and I'm thinking like, I need to, I wanna submit myself to this. They're doing an amazing thing, wow. Like I wanna be part of this, right? We do that, we, we order ourselves under people and then we give honor because of the work. If someone's not doing anything and there's no fruit in their life, <laughs> right? It's like, it's a seal of, of work. All right, guys, we made it. So those are just, yeah, go ahead, Rob. 